0: When food is seasonal, that's when nature gifts it to us. When it's the easy thing for nature to give us. If it comes out of season, we've had to force it to happen. And I think that's as a producer, I think that's one of the pivotal things that when you know customers do is when we buy food out of season, we're actually um, yeah potentially causing harm to the earth.
1: Today is a special day on the podcast. We are wrapping up the joe barrett takeover week joe has been chatting to changemakers in food systems all week and it's been really inspiring we are finishing with a bang i will let joe take it away
2: so today i'm speaking with matthew Evan. he's a former chef and food critic and he has written nine books and i thought one was hard and then Matthew's nine, just blew it out of the park. He lives and works on Fat Pig Farm, a soil to stomach regenerative farm and kitchen in Tasmania. He tours around the country covering many hot topics. I saw Matthew speak at Grains Festival earlier this year in Geelong. However, I have been a fan for quite a while. In 2021, Matthew published Soil, which was around the same time that I was at Future Food System. And there were many similarities between that project and the book. I'm really interested in his transition from restaurants to agriculture, and I know that's sparked by his beliefs in the food system. Matthew, thank you for this opportunity and for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thank you. You've got an incredible way of retaining information and then regurgitating it out to people so they can digest it, Um, and that's really apparent in your books, and you tackle some massive issues in the current food system. Um, I'm really keen to know from your time as a chef and a food critic to now, what have been the biggest changes in your thinking about our food system?
0: Oh yeah, look, it's four decades pretty much since I started my apprenticeship. It's really scary, and and you go, oh my god, um, look, look, there's massive changes, and and a lot of them have been good, and um, so you know, um, I'll start with maybe you know, some of that because when I was a chef, we trained as you know, I trained in Canberra. We no one opened their own oysters. You know, oysters came pre-opened. Um, you know, I never saw a lime in my entire apprenticeship. You know, in in you know 1980. Free, whatever we 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 used to when we made a lime sauce, we took lime cordial and boiled it up in a pan with you know cream that was a lime sauce to put on chicken breast, so you know the the the. It's easy to find fault, I guess, with you know, a lot of things that, that we do today. But this, in some ways, the variety of food, what we're what's available, and how we understand how to treat and respect the produce, I think, has come um, ahead in leaps and bounds. Um, but I guess on the on the flip side of that is the intensification of the food system and the um, you know the fact that. Um, Food is having to come from further away and it's coming more out of season and the, the people who cook at the chefs on the ground, the home cooks are losing um, some of that um, uh, innate – uh, wisdom about what is seasonal because you, you think it's seasonal because you see it in the shops and you know, or you your, your um wholesaler or your greengrocer has got it, you know. Um, or um and, and I think we're loot and and, and if, if if something isn't season yeah, you know, when food is seasonal, that's when nature gifts it to us. When it's the easy thing. If 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 something isn't season you know, when food is seasonal, that's when nature gifts it to us. When it's the easy thing for nature to give us. If it comes out of season, we've had to force it to happen. And I think that's as a producer I think that's one of the pivotal things that when you know customers do is when we buy food out of season we're actually um yeah potentially causing harm to the earth
2: yeah when you were on your apprenticeship were you even kind of thinking about where food was coming from
0: no <laughs> no no I just wanted to stay I just wanted to stay alive um I don't know what kitchens are like these days and I'm sure your kitchen Joe is very um pleasant to work in and hopefully ours was um on the farm um the, uh, but the kitchens that I trained in were dangerous places, and um, you just wanted to stay out of trouble. And um, you, yeah, you just wanted to you know, get the job done as quickly as possible, so so no one shouted at you. Um, where, you know, where the food came from was not um, was not something that I gave a, a second's thought to.
2: And then, so was it when you started to kind of restaurant critique that you started to think about. Produce or like when did the shift start to happen when you before you made the move to Tasmania?
0: Yeah, so so I became a head chef of a restaurant in Canberra in the mid 90s. Um, and I then, um, it was at that time that I started to, you know, I was was the person talking to the suppliers, and I'm going, Well, why, why is that chicken breast better than the other chicken? Can I have the good one, you know, and and oh. I can get f- seafood that's not frozen, you know, oh, that's fantastic and, um, you know, I can talk to someone who's, you know, the the oyster farmer and the oyster farmer will bring the oysters to my door unopened and it was then, then that I started to realise, um, you know, I sort of heard about good food and, and you know, seasonality and, you know, how, how important soil health was and, you know, how important farmers were. But it was all sort of tokenistic, but it was only when I was actually at that moment I'm going, oh, so so this is actually good and it is worth paying the extra money and it, and it does make my job easier as a, as a cook.
2: Mm. Yeah, I remember having a moment. Um, I was living in Canada and did part of my apprenticeship over there and then I came back and I remember it like, took forever to fly back from Canada and was eat at a restaurant and they served a Canadian scallop and I thought – Oh, we have amazing scallops here in Port, you know, in the in our Melbourne port. Why are we flying them all the way from Canada? I know how far that is. Now I've just been there, and it was a really big moment of like, what the hell's going
0: on? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And it does take a, it does take something like that, a, uh, this like oh moment, um, like oh, hang, hang on, uh, uh, I thought the cherries were local, but. You know, they they seem to be from California this week, you know, so um, I need to change my menu.
2: It's odd. And I do feel like if things were going really well, we probably wouldn't be talking about, you know, soil health and the climate as much, but they're not. You know, and at the beginning of your book, Soil, you do kind of do a bit of a snapshot of what agriculture currently looks like. Could you kind of summarise, I guess, you know, what is happening at the moment with growing food?
0: Yeah, so growing food, like, because the the way we we choose to grow food, typically humans arrive in a place, this is historically, um, and and, um, the way farming works, Western-style farming, you know, not um, Aboriginal-style farming, yeah, but European-style farming, people arrive in a place, if there's trees, they cut them down and grow a crop or graze an animal. And if there's grass, they probably graze an animal, and it's probably not good enough to grow a crop. Um, but they might they might grow a crop. That's pretty much how it works. And then we would plough the soil to grow the crops, and that that's really bad for soil. So, um, uh, and 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 what we what has happened typically is humans have grown food, and gone. Oh, hang on, the soil's lost its fertility; it's not as good anymore. Like the, the the bread basket of biblical era is is a desert now. You know that's what's happened. You know the Garden of Eden is is not a garden anymore. And so that's happened over history. But what we've done We've just gone. Oh, oh, that's a bit of a shame, and we've moved on. You know, something like sixteen major civilizations have collapsed because they've ruined their soil and um, and haven't been able to um, you know, feed their their population. So, so soil health and you know and, and civilization has been you know big communities have been intimately tied. Um, Currently, we lose soil if you, you – know, our cropping land where you grow your your, your, um, your vegetables and your grains, uh, if you plough the land, the global average is you lose soil 100 times faster than nature can make it, and um, if you don't plough the land, it's about 10 to 20 times faster than nature can make it that soil is lost. Now, some people can grow crops and not lose soil, but that's the global average, so – that means on average, for every breakfast, for every lunch, for every dinner that every human on earth eats, we lose up to nine kilograms of topsoil per meal per person. So imagine that when you have your you know, your cereal tomorrow, a bucket full of Topsoil washed or blown away, and and when soil is washed or blown away, it, it becomes less fertile. You yeah, so we're we're damaging land at crazy rates, and there's only one Earth. You know, they talk about oh, we're going to test for soil on Mars or test for the soil. The, the Mars and Moon don't have soil; they have dirt, and dirt does not grow food. Um, what we've got on here on Earth is a system of beautiful topsoil. It's co-evolved with plants and animals. Um, you know, uh, with plants for the last 400, five, you know, 500 million years, for, with animals for a little bit less than that, that's the soil that is evolved to grow our food. Can we grow topsoil and grow food? Well, the good news, Joe, is we can. So while farming has damaged land, there have been some farmers who've managed to grow crops for thousands of years in the same place. And what we need to do is learn off those farmers, use some modern techniques, modern technology and and. And, and not only stop damaging soil, but repair the damage thing that farming farming has done.
2: Yeah, would you? Is that regenerative av- agriculture?
0: Yeah, look, it, look, yeah, regenerative agriculture is, I guess, the sort of, yeah, the, the umbrella term that most people use for that, or agroecology. So, there are there are other terms. There are farmers who, who you know, well, I don't do regenerative agriculture, who are building topsoil and doing great things. So they're kind of doing it. They just don't have a label for it. Um, and, and, you know, farmers aren't trying to ruin the world. No one's no – one's, very few people have gone out there going, oh, well, bugger it. You know, it doesn't matter if this happens, you know, if we damage land. But it can be really slow. It can be incremental. We may not see it happen. And now we know how to measure these things and we also know how to – to um, uh, 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 restore landscapes and you know build biodiversity and grow you know uh, nutritious delicious food, um, but it does take a little bit of a mind shift because of you know ten thousand years of accumulated farming knowledge is embodied in the farmers today uh, and and their practices and and some of those people will be will find it maybe hard to to change or to say oh hang on. You know, I've tried to do the best for my land, but maybe it's gone downhill in my lifetime. Maybe we need to, um, you know, change the system and, and repair some of the the damage that we've caused, inadvertently caused. And I, and I stress that because farmers, are, you know, they're really not trying to do damage. They're just trying to, you know, grow food for for the other 99% of the population who don't farm um, uh, and and not go broke in the process, you know. Um, so it does take – But but the good news is we do have the technology and the wisdom.
2: We um, did an interview with Sam Oakden from Stop Food Waste Australia and he was talking about they kind of go into big industry and work with government to stop food waste on a large scale. And while we're interviewing him, I had a realisation of like, oh, no one's actually trying to create food waste. You know, it's costly. And I know, know people always kind of, the pressure goes onto the farmer of, yeah, they're not trying to ruin the planet. They're just trying to feed people and stay alive. So it's been a really big realization this week of like some of the bigger issues that we're having. No one's trying to, to cause them.
0: <laughs> yeah, there is a there can be a sense of demonization and look, there are, there are people who have agendas about you know how we should eat and what we should eat who 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 can demonize farmers and um and, and it's not very helpful because because yeah people they're just there you know um growing some food and. You might not agree with the way they treat the animals, or the way they, you know, what they've done with their chemical, your chemical use, or whatever. Um, but they're not doing it um, out of, you know, uh, out of malice or spite. They, you know, there's a there's a there's a commercial imperative to to be able to do it at a certain price because that's what people will pay. Um, they, they believe they're doing the right thing, and um, and and what I really like about um, you know the idea of of you know, regenerative agriculture or you know re- you know, uh, agroecology is that um, there are all these problems with you know, you know, carbon in the atmosphere and, and, and um, you know, uh, floods and droughts and, and, and all these kind of problems which are, which are going to um, impact us all more and more. And a lot of them can be repaired by good farming. Um, You know, a good farm ecosystem is a biodiverse ecosystem. Um, You know, it filters water so that, you know, the water passing through the property is clean when it comes out because that's what good soil does, it cleans the water. More carbon in your soil is really good for your plants and your animals, but it's also, you know – uh, it helps to store water better, so it, water gets you know, um, infiltrates better. So in in rains and and in droughts, it stays in the in the soil better. So it's really good for for you know for for the farmer and good for the soil to be doing these things. But you know, carbon in soil is much better than having it in the atmosphere. So you know, farming has sort of been part of the problem. Uh, you know, and and it's not a small part of the the problem with biodiversity loss and some carbon into the atmosphere. But it's 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 also a massive part of the solution.
2: Yeah, I can I can see that. And I think food is a big part of the solution, which is exciting because we all eat. <laughs> um, you did talk about, um, which, you know, you said topsoil. And I love that part of your book, In Soil. And I think a lot of people would think topsoil is a thing that gets delivered or that you pick up from bunnings in a bag. Could you tell us a little bit about topsoil? And um, I feel like that's a really major part of – um, like a misconception, the importance of topsoil and what's happening to it. What happens to it when you kind of farm incorrectly Or yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 so, what we walk around on, what stuff grows in. You know, most of that is you know um, uh, uh, a crushed up rock. So the thing we're walking on is is crushed up rock. So it's sand and silt and clay. So that's that's dirt, and only becomes soil when it has something really magical in it, and that's life. So so so. There's a, there's a cliche from the 1930s, I think it is, that that, that humanity only exists because um, the fact we have six inches of topsoil, and it occasionally rains. Right, that's the difference between us existing on Earth and not. That's and then that's that's actually a fact. So except we don't have six inches of topsoil in most of Australia. I'm in Western Australia, and we you know parts of this state only have about a centimetre of topsoil. That's the difference because that's what does all the growing. So so the dirt doesn't do growing. You need life in the soil. Um, when you dig into the soil, it's the dark bit at the top. So if you dig into your back garden, um, it'll be the very dark bit at the top. And, and that dark bit is organic matter. So that's stuff that used to be alive. So it's, you know um, – leaf matter and and, um, uh, and roots that have rotted into the ground, but it's also living things. So, about 1% of the, the dry matter of soil is living stuff. And and when people talk about healthy soil, like healthy by definition means alive. And, and and biology, we're just discovering how much life there is in soil. So, a single teaspoon of soil can have more living things than there are humans on the planet. So, the, the amount that fits into the end of your thumb, the last joint of your thumb can have about 10 billion living things and those living things plants don't eat dirt but they need things that are locked in the in rocks things like iron and copper and magnesium whatever that's all minerals in rocks and plants can't sort of eat rocks but they can get the the biology the living things in soil can dissolve those minerals and make them available to the plant in a form the plant can digest so so that Biology and your listeners may some of them may have heard of the human microbiome. So inside us there's all these living things that help us to digest our food. They're really important. Over half the cells in the human body aren't us. And those things help us digest our food. A plant has the same thing, but their gut, you know, essentially is outside the roots, so it's the bit around their roots. And all the living things out on the outside of the roots are helping them to get Digest their food, the stuff that they really need from um, that the, are the locked in rock crystals. And there's tiny amounts of those minerals, um, but they, they're they're absolutely vital. It's it's like vitamins and minerals for us. You know, we don't need huge amounts, but yet yeah, we need them. Otherwise, we we get sick.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. I can, I can see how you know we at Future Food System we spoke a lot about nutrition density in our food from the soil and when you kind of align it with your gut biome or treat the roots as your stomach it's really interesting that you know if we've got depleted soils then you know the nutrition of our vegetables would have to be depleting as well do you think you know we've got a depletion happening there
0: yeah. So so and, and look the the thing about the, the the um the depletion there can be iron or you know, let's use iron because we all need iron and we all know that we need you know it's it's important in our blood and all that sort of stuff and a lot of people it can be iron deficient. So soil can have iron in it, but it doesn't necessarily get into the plants that are growing in that soil because of that biology or because of it, you know the, the chemical interactions with plants and soil. And so um, so how do, how how can the plant access the iron that's in the soil? It's in you know a more Living system, a more biological system, a more active, healthy soil, can allow the plant to absorb more of the iron that's in around its roots. So, so sometimes we have um, deficiencies because you know, things are washed through uh, our soils, particularly Australia. Our soils are old, so certain minerals wash out quicker than others. Um, sometimes things weren't you know weren't really in that part of the world, and other things were more, more dominant. But generally, most of the things the plant wants are generally around, and and um, and, and and it's how the plants access can access them um, that becomes important. And and yeah, so so um, uh, you know that that's why you know, uh, you know people get their soil tests, and they might need to add little trace elements and small amounts of stuff. But you still got to get the plant to take it up. And nutrient density is, I think, that you know, it's, it's the next great frontier where we say, okay, so. You know, uh one carrot is not the same as another carrot. One has more nutrient density than another. And and so, um, how do we test for that? And for us, yeah, for me as a grower, what I've discovered is is that, yeah, the more living my soil is, the more interactions there are between the plant and the soil. It sounds crazy to your listeners. They probably you know, they'll think I'm you know, sort of some woo-woo, you know, hippie from southern Tasmania. But but plants can talk, you know, they sort of communicate with the soil to say what they need and they create chemicals and they have this chemical communication going on between plants and soil and between soil and plants. So So the more stuff in the soil, the more – communications going on from the plant and and, the, and those chemicals of communication are actually nutrients they're micronutrients that uh, a lot of them are really you know have a, have a role in human health some some are, are don't but um vast majority you know have some role in human health so, and as again tiny fractions but the nice thing is um, for me is that that those uh, those chemicals actually a lot of them have a flavour, have a have a smell. So we can essentially flavor for us as humans. So we eat a, a carrot that's more nutrient dense. We can actually tell the difference um when we eat it about one that's more nutrient dense, more delicious, more complex. Um and it's it's almost as though humans were hardwired, almost like we've been evolved to be able to tell more nutrient dense food when we eat it, you know, I mean it's a great system.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that because I find when, you know, when we pick things for the restaurant in our, where we grow, um, they taste a lot better and then you don't need to eat as much. It kind of feels like you're satisfied because you've gotten everything that you need from the plant but then when you're eating things that, may, you know, might not have much more flavour and maybe less nutrients, you kind of just keep eating and then you overeat. <laughs> you kind of like, it's like your body's seeking that out.
0: Yeah, there's some really clever people all around the world who do research on this sort of idea of animal wisdom, and, and they deal with livestock. So I was just talking to someone about sheep, and they said sheep have wisdom. And I don't know if anyone's ever had sheep, but like you know, they <laughs> thinking of sheep having wisdom made me laugh. But they have this body wisdom, so they know what they need to eat. So if you give them enough of a variety of plants, they get this. Uh, sent, you know, they, they kind of know what they need at certain times of year. So they'll eat different plants at different times of year or, you know, if they're pregnant or just given birth or whatever. And they have this body wisdom. And we know from some research that was done on um, uh, orphans um, this last century before, when, when they were, um, uh, these kids were given an array of foods, um, they chose the things that suited them. And their metabolism and, um, and gave them the nutrients we, they wanted. And so it's this beautiful thing. Humans have this ability, but we also have a, a massive manufacturing system and marketing system that makes lots of money by tricking us. And so, you know, when I say, oh, we have, we have this innate capacity to tell something is nutrient dense because it's more delicious, well, it doesn't work for donuts right? Because because the system is designed to trick us into thinking donuts are nutrient-dense when they're not. And you nailed it when you said that the problem is with that, we eat the donut and then we still, act, our body is saying, well, you still haven't given me the nutrients I need. Oh, I better eat another donut or I better go and eat a packet of chips or whatever. And I'm I'm as bad as anyone, you know, give me a packet of chips, you know, I'm solving a chips, the packet's gone, right? And I know in my brain that, you know, the conscious bit that's, not giving me my nutrients, but but I'm sort of craving them. Thinking i have got this has got to give me some set, you know, I'm getting something from this, but then I keep eating them, so I'm obviously not getting it. Give me a, you know, something to, a delicious vegetable. I eat it and I'm like, yep, done. My body's happy. I Don't need to eat any more.
2: Yeah, and I do think that ties in as well with the seasonality because I'm a really big big advocate on seasonal produce, and I think that the season produces what you need at that time and like where you're living and the climate that you're living in, it will provide you what you need to live in that, that climate, um, which is really fun as a chef because you're, it just provides you ideas to cook, um, which is exciting. Um, I do have a question actually, and it's, I haven't written this one down, but it's definitely just for me, <laughs> but no-till farming, um, you know, I've been really interested in that with growing food, and I probably quite don't quite understand it. You know, when I think of no till it's like not disturbing the soil. But then when you're planting you got I guess you have to build a, a garden bed. Is no till does that just apply to large scale agriculture or does it apply to like the home gardener or small scale farming?
0: Yeah, so, so so yeah, so tillage um is, is ploughing essentially, so you're plowing the soil, so no, And no tilling, it means to not plough because soil, all those living things, they've got a home, they've got a system, they've got structure. They actually glue the, you know, the, the living things in soil actually glue the soil, the rock particles together in ways that have little holes for air and holes that water can penetrate and all that sort of stuff. And when you... Till soil when you plough it, you dig it, you destroy that structure. So, in, you know, in a home garden, it's the exact same as on a big, you know, um, uh, 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 wheat farm. Um, if you cannot turn your soil, um, it's a brilliant thing. So, I grew up. You know, hearing oh, you got to dig in your compost, you got to turn your soil to aerate it. If you actually do that, when you when you dig soil, yes, it looks fluffier, but you, it's lost its structure. So, so by the time it's settled down, it's actually um, it's more compacted after you've dug it than before. Um, so, it might be worth you know when you first establish a garden bed to to you know put some organic matter in and dig dig it in, but then never dig it again if you can help it. Now, these are all. Now that's that's an idea that you really want to you know, aspire to, but um, you know you have to put little holes in to put your crops in. You grow parsnips. You tell me how you can get a parsnip out without digging. You know, or potatoes. You know, you, so so the, the idea is that, but can it can you actually do it? Um, uh, in reality, it's a bit trickier. Um, but yeah, the idea is to to not destroy the soil structure, and so that's that's there's lots of really um, you know that that's. The majority of your grains now in Australia would probably be grown by not um, digging. So, they, they direct drill. So, they essentially put little holes in the in the ground and drop the seeds in, um, but they use big tractors to do that. And you can do that in your home garden. Um, you know, when you think of soil, the best soil in Australia is, you know, probably in some rainforest, probably near me in southern Tasmania, um, deep really deep topsoil, you know, it's really fertile. Uh, and and I, I have never in those ancient forests with the deep topsoil seen an old codger like me digging in the compost. Um, soil has a system for taking nutrients that from the top, so things that, you know, mulch, leaf litter that falls on the top, and drawing them down. So in your home garden, mulch the top, maybe apply your compost to the top, and soil has a system for drawing that down into itself, because there are all those living things that do that for us.
2: If you're, um, like, you know, with my book Sustain, it's about kind of reconnecting with the food system if you not necessarily if you're growing food, so using farmers markets and do you think, um, with being a chef or like within the industry that there's an opportunity to reconnect with the food system if you're not growing growing food? Or like how do you see restaurants doing it now?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Look, and I think in Australia we you know, it's what's interesting, the restaurants uh restaurants are uh, they they have a different role than they have in some countries. So you know, when I travel to China or I go, travel to you know, Italy or, or Spain or France, or whatever, they have these um, peasant cultures, and then the restaurants are sort of going, "Oh, well, I'm going to take the cassoulet or the you know the." the beggar's chicken and I'm gonna turn it into a fancy dish in the restaurant and I'm gonna raise the steaks. I'm gonna make it a more beautiful and elegant thing. And um, but they're they're born out of this sort of peasant culture. Here, a lot of people look to restaurants and that's where they learn about Harissa and it's where they learn about, you know, free range chickens. And they you know, they discover stuff in restaurants rather than from their grandma around the you know, um, in the kitchen. Um, and I'm not sure why that is, but it just seems to be the nature of, of our um, you know, our, the, the, our food culture. And so, the responsibility of chefs for me is, you know, that really they really need to know where the stuff's coming from. It, it, it appalls me that most Australians don't want to use cage eggs, you know, from from chickens locked in cages. And, the, and so, virtually no one buys them at the supermarket, but we still sell way more cage eggs than, than we do free range or, or, or your barn laid eggs. And the reason is because we use them in food service. We use them in hotels and Clubs and restaurants and cafes and, and and sushi bars or whatever. And so, you know, these the chefs have such a responsibility, you know. We, the, we We deal with such large quantities of food. We influence so many people even, you know, unknowingly because they come to our places and they go, oh, look at that raspberries are on something i might go and buy some raspberries they must be in season you know not realizing that the chefs had them you know brought three thousand kilometers from three thousand kilometers away and they're not really in season where you live and so that responsibility i'd love to see for your yeah, chefs getting involved in that food system but we can all be involved you know with you yeah, as a person going to a market as a as a shopper in a supermarket as a um you know as, as a, um, a home cook as a you know as an eater a cook a farmer a gardener a, a chef we all can play our part in this
2: yeah I I agree with you it's funny because I do have moments I guess why I was so excited to speak with you because you know I followed that transition that you did from critiquing and chefing to the farm in Tassie and after um, Oak Ridge Winery where I was working with Matt and then we went to Future Food System I had this moment of like what am I doing as a chef you know this is a wild thing to be a part of that's potentially damaging our planet. Um, And then I saw what you were doing and it's given me a lot of hope that, you know, I love cooking. I love being a chef and having a restaurant, but I don't want to do harm. And, um, you know, it's an interesting balancing act between trying to make a business viable and then trying to do the right thing. And I, I know a lot of, you know, my peers reach out and kind of say, oh, you know, it's good to be, you know, do things with sustainable practices, but can you get it to work as a business? And I think you can. I think it's about cooking seasonally and composting and reducing chemical use and connecting with your local community. And I think for home cooks, it's about seasonal cooking, like you said, and um, connecting with your food system if it's just growing something small or, um, I don't know, making different choices with your your food on your table and i know you've written a lot of books and i i feel like i'm running out of time to cover everything but you did you've spoken a lot about i guess choosing a carnivore diet or a plant-based diet and i think for a long time i thought you know a plant-based diet was better for the planet you know do you think plant-based diets are more beneficial for the climate or what's your take on that
0: yeah, look, it's a really nuanced thing. Look, I wrote a book called On Eating Meat, which is about the ethics of eating meat. And and I, I got invited onto panels and they'd always have me because I'm, I, I eat meat and I've chosen to eat meat, but I used to be vegetarian. And, and and then they'd have like a vegan or a vegetarian and it was supposed to be this sort of, you know, you know, um, uh, you know uh, I was supposed to represent the meat eaters. And the whole point of my book was to say, I really don't care if you eat meat or not, but don't take your information from the internet. Don't. Um, you know, don't just base it on some false assumptions because a lot of false assumptions in that. Um, you know, I, I was reading a, a very uh, well-respected vegan writer who was saying, you know, eating a steak is like flying from New York to, to London. You know, the carbon emissions, and it simply isn't. So, 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 you can't equate the methane that a cow burps out with fossil fuel emissions. They, they, they are not. They are they're false equivalents. So. Animals can re- be really damaging for the planet, like really bad. But they can also be really good. The only, the 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 vast majority not the only, but the vast majority of regenerative farms that are truly drawing down carbon and truly building diverse ecosystems have animals in the system, um, and and because soil needs animals, soils. Evolved around animals, so you take animals out of the system, it soil really struggles, and so you, those animals can be wild. You know, you can use, somehow use wild animals and birds that fly in, hard to manage, or you can use domesticated animals and to restore ecosystems, draw carbon into soil, um, and you can use them in the system. So for me personally, you know, you're all grown ups, make your own decision about eating meat or not. A lot of people are making decisions based on uh, false information. Uh, most people who are advocating a vegan diet. Don't well, they farm with their pens, right? They don't farm with their hands and their backs, and they don't necessarily understand ecosystems on the ground. And so, we've chosen to eat meat. When I go away, I become pretty, you know, a lot more vegetarian when I travel because you know um, because I want to be sure about the the welfare of the animals I eat. So I, you know, I get the vegan vegetarian standpoint in that sense. Um, from an ecological perspective, uh, uh, farming without animals um, just means relying on, on chemicals, which is not good for soil, which is not good for the future of the planet. So I think we need animals in the system, how many, uh, who eats them, how, how that's done. Um, it's everyone's decision about, you know, for themselves what they want to eat, but it's, it'll be pretty hard to run a farming system without um, without animals and, and actually do it for 10,000 years into the future to look after soil health.
2: Mm. You have some like super interesting panels coming up, um, one in particular in Byron Bay with Yoast and Zach Bush, which I wish I could be there for. Um, I feel like lots of minds are coming together and, you know, there's a lot of topics being spoken about. And I guess to wrap up, do you see a positive future for our food system and farming?
0: Yeah, I do. I'm lucky enough to, to um, get to visit, you know, other farms. I'm sitting on one. Um, in Western Australia, as we speak, um, where they're doing pasture-raised chickens, and you know they've got all their preserves from their, you know, their orchard, and um, you know they're 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 storing carbon in soil, and they you've got tree plantings around the dams, and it's a beautiful place. Like it's just utterly striking, and you go, this is. Yeah, this is how farming should be. It's a nice place to be. It's a it's a it's a functioning ecosystem. Um, it's it's doing services for society in terms of filtering water and cleaning the air and all that kind of stuff. And it's producing nutrient dense food. And so I have a great hope um, in the food system. I have a great faith that, that the people um, very responsible for, for growing our food can um, can repair the, the, some of the, you know the damage we've done and and even make you know, some of the, the places even. Better better than they, they uh, were before.
2: Yeah, so do I. We have some amazing growers down here on the surf coast, like Kinsfolk Farm, who you know grow amazing produce. It's delicious. And then they're getting it out to the public. And it's really exciting. I think there's big movements in different regions that are happening like that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, look. You think of how many market gardens are around now, and I'm, I'm not sure how long you've been sort of, you know, in that system. But 20 years ago, yeah, you, 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 know, you, you didn't find many farmers' markets, and there were, you know, fewer market gardens, and they're. Yeah, that means market guns are great because they're they're local, they're close, they're small scale, so they have to sell it quickly. They they can focus really on on soil health. Um, yeah, yeah, they're the worst paid. You know, if you look at <laughs> unfortunately, the noble profession of, of of market gun is the yeah the lowest profession, paid profession, followed by farmers, followed by hospitality workers. You know, so so the things that matter in life don't seem to. You know, be rewarded financially, but um, but it's a beautiful lifestyle. There's some amazing people in the space, especially um, young young farmers, because most farmers are older. But young farmers, a lot of women farmers in that space. Yeah, you know, female farmers are like, just doing unbelievably good stuff, and I I t- tip my hat to all of them.
2: Yeah. Oh, thanks so much, Matthew, for taking the time to chat with me. I was really excited and nervous and. I think you're amazing, and what you've done is incredible, and I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I'm really stoked to talk to you. I, I want to go to your restaurant. Yeah, any time. about it, I was going. Oh, I want to. I want to be there. Yeah, no worries. So hopefully we'll catch up in in person soon.
2: Thank you, Matthew, for taking the time to have a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot. I don't know, Danny, if you have anything you'd like to say.
1: Well, I would. Just love to say that I'm so excited to have you both on Dirty Linen. Um, Joe. this has just been such a a satisfying week to hand the podcast over to you. I just have really enjoyed the way that you've um, stepped through these conversations. So much food for thought. Um, And Matthew, I always love listening to you speak the way that you know, yeah, answer questions, but also um, pose so many more and put the responsibility on us as as eaters to you know we decide if we eat meat, we decide where we want to shop, but to know that there is an impact that comes from that. So yeah, thanks thanks to you both. Really, it's really a thrill for me to hand it over to you. Um, and you just uh, yeah, I just love the way you think, Joe, and and great to see you express that in a podcast as well as all the other things you do.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun.
1: Bit of
0: a love fest. <laughs> I was so excited to be invited on.
2: <laughs> That's oh, all Yeah, hard. virtual. <laughs> so my question is because um, you both come from the critiquing background and then I guess, Danny, you've really stepped into the social welfare and um, that area of hospitality and, Matthew, I guess you're a planet warrior. Do you think that restaurants are going to make – a positive change for the planet or worse, do you think
1: um, you can be a chef in an ethical way? Oh, such a big question. I feel, uh, I think that's definitely possible to be a chef in a positive way and I mean, you know, you're asking the question but you're also doing it. I think, you know, cooking so thoughtfully. I think there are so many examples of people who are working in that way uh, but, you know, I also think uh Food is obviously a mass – it's a mass enterprise and at the mass level, there are really good things going on. I think some of the biggest food manufacturers also have the potential to invest in doing better, but there is – I don't know, the one that I always think of is bubble tea and I think of the um, incredible amount of plastic, um, all the ingredients and where who knows where they come from and then they're sealed in plastic. They're, you know, it's – I feel like – and they're in – Shopping centres that are insulated from the from the real world. I mean, imagine thinking about soil while you're standing in you know a major Westfield shopping centre buying a bubble tea. I feel like there is still a lot of disconnect, uh, but there is a lot of hope. What do you reckon, Matthew?
0: Yeah, Danny, you nailed it. Cause I think bubble tea is the like. It, I think it has no upside. You know, in terms of the environment, in terms of farming, there is there is it it, it is kind of like that the anti-hero um, <laughs> um but so i'm a bit like you I, I have this great faith there's people like joe and there's amazing young chefs and people doing incredible stuff on the ground and i see that all the time and then i'll be in a in one of our bigger cities and i'll see that there are how much consumption and thoughtless consumption and and, and i think that the only way that we that the planet is yeah, it can be salvaged from its you know perhaps inevitable doom is if we have systems change in a big way so so okay if they're going to have bubble tea that has to be in something that's you know can be composted and you know it you know the the the, the, the there are so many things that, you, that we as small Producers as as people running small venues or individuals going to a shop or a market can't do, and so some of the big things have to be, have to be you know, legislated for, or or, or or you know community standards have to be imposed on other things. You know you can't, you, know, you should you shouldn't be able to sell takeaway in stuff that's not compostable or whatever that thing is, and and then they'll do it. <laughs> you know make a rule and everybody will do it you know so it
1: and yeah we've we've seen that again and again so it's it's possible but it takes it takes guts from legislators and you know and that's also i guess we're all implicated in that in how we vote so um yeah it's possible
0: yeah so time for a bubble tea
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right thank you so much and thanks again to you Joe it's been such a pleasure thank you thank you
0: this.